Amen. Here's a question I want to kick off with. Who are you? Uh, who are you? Uh, if you had to uh, describe yourself to someone in no more than 10 words, which words would you choose? In fact, let's put this to the test. Why don't you, uh, this could be slightly awkward, but go with it. Bear with it. Uh, turn to the person next to you uh, and ask them that very question. Ask them, who are you? Tell me who you are in no more than 10 words. So this shouldn't take long, shouldn't take longer than 20 words. So go to it. Okay, well, I, I can see lots of puzzled faces and kind of lots of fingers uh, everywhere. Well, uh, for those who are wondering, standing in front of you right now is a white, male, heterosexual, middle-classed, youthful, yeah. athletic, <laughs> husband, father, and church-leading preacher. Now, what I just did... I've thought about that before, you might have told. Now, what I just did was what I think many of us do, actually, whenever we meet someone for the first time. It's like, we're very quick, aren't we, to put people into different categories that bring a bit of definition to who they are. And more and more of us, actually, I think, think of ourselves primarily in terms of those different categories, whether it's our gender our skin colour, our sexuality, our marital status, our class, our job, or whatever. Now, if you lob into the mix the twin ingredients that are pretty prevalent right now in our culture, the twin ingredients of individualism and entitlement, the result is the belief that it's actually my God-given right to pursue who I think I am, and woe betide anybody else who questions it or dares to stand in my way. Which is kind of understandable if my whole identity is tied to those different categories. I mean, why wouldn't I do everything in my power to live out who I am? At the end of the day, I, I just need to be true to myself. Now look, although all those kinds of roles and categories, but they can often provide a bit of stability to us, a bit of security to us, I reckon the problem comes when those things change a bit, as inevitably they do over time. Perhaps it's the loss of a job, or the breakdown of a marriage, or a bout of unexpected illness, or the pain of infertility, or the onset of middle age, or our children growing up and leaving home. Those kind of things can shake our security a bit and flood our mind with all manner of questions. Similarly, when other people fail to see us the way that we see ourselves, like your kind of mockery of my statement that I'm youthful and athletic, for example, and people don't see us the way we see ourselves, or perhaps start to question the accuracy or legitimacy of things that we really hold dear, then it can be deeply, deeply unsettling for us, can't it? However, perhaps the biggest issue of all is when we finally get that new job, or gain that qualification, or meet that someone we've been waiting to spend the rest of our life with, 
or when the babies come and we're able to nurture all of our hopes and dreams with them or we get the recognition or the affirmation or the responsibility that we've craved and longed for, even in those moments when we come down from the emotional high of them, we realize that really none of those things actually fulfill us in the way we'd hoped for or expected. Despite having invested so much of ourselves in what we thought would provide a lasting sense of meaning, we discovered that we still hardly know ourselves in the midst of it all. It's like the things that we look to for our stability and for our meaning, for our hope, end up just being burdens and obligations rather than blessings. Can't you see? This isn't going particularly well for us. It's like all of these categories have become more and more important to us and how we understand ourselves, but actually they've caused us to lose sight of the bigger picture. And as a result, we're becoming, I think, as a culture, as a society, more uncertain, more unsettled, more restless, more confused about who we are than perhaps at any other point in all of history, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Because if ever there was a generation who should have a sense of its own identity, surely it's ours. But despite all of the education, despite our independence, despite all of our relationships, despite all the freedom we have, despite the choices and opportunities that are open to us, despite being told that we can be whatever or whoever we want to be, we still can't escape feeling lost and directionless. Now, what I've been saying throughout this series in the opening chapters of Genesis is that when you're lost, really the best thing to do is retrace your steps all the way back to the start and see how things were actually designed to be in the very beginning. And the stunning revelation that we're going to get from today's passage is that God created us in the first place in his own image and likeness. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. It's the famous passage that describes the very first moments of human existence. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, like with pretty much every other passage that we've delved into so far in this series, these verses immediately bring up a huge array of different questions. For starters, you might have noticed that the image of God is related to gender. Male and female, he created them. We're actually not going to get to that for a few weeks yet. It's also related to work, that we were put in this world to rule and have dominion in the world. Now, what does that mean? 
well, we're going to put that off until the week after next, if that's all right with you or us will be here all day. All I want to do this morning is simply help you redefine yourself, first and foremost, in terms of being made in the image and likeness of God. More than anything else, I want you to see that everything about life, from the gifts and the abilities, the skills you have, to your gender, to your race, everything flows from Him and through Him and to Him. That your very existence is linked deeply and inseparably to His. Now, through it all, I'm not going to call you to completely abandon all of those labels and categories that perhaps you use to define yourself. I simply want us to take a step back and perhaps lay a slightly more solid foundation to build all of those different categories on. And to that end, there are three questions that I want to try and answer in the time that's left for me today. First of all, what does being made in the image of God actually mean in practice? Secondly, how does this affect our view of ourselves and of others? And then thirdly, where the image of God is broken, how can it be repaired again? Those are our three questions. Here's the first one. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, lots of things. Uh, I'm going to discipline myself and just mention two. Here's the first one. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? First of all, it means reflection. Let's say that uh, I had a uh, a sheet of paper in my back pocket or maybe uh, an easel with a canvas on it uh, and I decided to paint a portrait of Millerad here. And if the painting turns out to be a pretty accurate reflection of Millerad, then in two or three centuries' time, someone could trundle along to this school Uh, and see it on the wall, uh, and and look at it, uh, and see what Millerad looked like. And that's kind of what God is communicating to us when he says we are created in his image. He says, I've created human beings to reflect me, to reflect my glory, to reflect my goodness, my love, my character. I've made you a bit like a painting on a canvas, or maybe a better image would be, I've made you like a mirror. And if you reflect my character properly, you'll end up helping the whole world to see more clearly what I am truly like. And so what it means to be made in the image of God is first to actually face God so that we're accurately reflecting him and his character and then showing his glory, what he's like to the rest of the world. Now look, sounds great in theory, but actually this is a huge, huge challenge for many of us because uh, I think most of our questions, they start with us, don't they? Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What should I do with my life? But I'd argue the better question to ask is, who should I be? And if we're made in the image of God, the answer can only come by looking at the God in whose image we're made. And so when you ask the questions, well, who am I? And why am I here? And what should I be doing with my life? The answer is actually 
surprisingly simple. Because you're made in God's image, you exist to reflect and represent him on this earth. Because you're made in God's image, you are made to proclaim what he's like by doing what he does. Your greatest calling isn't to play in the band at the front or stand here and preach or be a missionary overseas or get married or make lots of money. None of that stuff is first and foremost to look to God see what he's like, and then reflect that to the people around you through your maleness, through your femaleness, through your singleness, your marriage, through all the different responsibilities that you carry in life. Do you see, none of those categories or roles are an end in themselves. They're more like the lens through which we display more of God's image to the world around us. Now, as you look to God, as you face him, what do you see? What's he like? How would you describe his personality and character? Help me out here. What's God like? Just shout some things out. He's kind, yeah. Loving, good, patient, merciful, immense, Honest, holy, faithful, a, 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 a weird sense of humor. Yeah. You, you like that, you like that. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? The personality of God. Oh, it's all coming now. He's caring, he's thoughtful, creative or knowing, always accessible, in control. Now look, these are some examples of what we're to reflect. Now, we can't be all-knowing, and we can't control everything, uh, and we may or may not have a weird sense of humor, but uh, kind of things like being holy, and loving, and good, and just, and merciful, and gracious, and faithful, patient, forgiving, truthful, wise. That's what we're called to be like. More than anything else, that's who God intends for you to be. If you work on reflecting those characteristics in your life, if you're changed, if you're conformed more and more into his likeness, then you'll grow more and more to be who you are always meant to be. The unmistakable genius of it all is that in discovering him, the source of all existence, you'll also discover yourself. In finding him, you will find the answer to the question, who am I and why am I here? It's like in the words of John Calvin, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And so when Genesis teaches that we're made in the image of God, it's doing way more than simply explaining how we came into existence or even how valuable we are. By revealing that we are made in God's image, we are being shown how we're to exist, how we were made to live, what it really means to be human. We've been told that being human means sharing God's nature in some way. Basically means living as he lives and doing what he does. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. 
means reflection, also means reliance. When God created us in his image, he established a relationship with us that the rest of creation just doesn't share. Augustine, a 5th century African bishop, he captured something of this when he wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Preachers often communicate the same idea when they speak about the God-shaped hole in the heart of every person that can really only be filled by a relationship with him. That hole is the direct result of being made in his image. It's like, apart from him, you can't be fully human. Apart from him, you can't be fully yourself. Now, I don't know. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't really care what other people think about me. And I certainly couldn't give two hoots what God thinks about me. I I don't even know if there is a God. All that really matters is I think I'm significant. But that's kind of like a mirror trying to light itself. It won't work. A A mirror can only reflect light if it is facing the light. And in the same way, we're designed in such a way as to always be dependent on something outside of us to give us glory and importance and significance. Like it or not, you are a spiritually dependent creature. And if for whatever reason you choose not to look to God, if you don't get your beauty and your sense of significance and worth from His love inevitably you are going to have to turn to something else. You're going to have to turn to another human being. You're going to have to turn to your family. You're going to have to turn to your job. You're going to have to turn to human approval. You're going to have to turn to professional success. You're going to have to get your glory and significance and worth from something else because you're made in such a way that you cannot generate it from yourself. So, being made in the image of God, means acknowledging our reliance on Him. Let's be honest, that doesn't come naturally to most of us. I mean, we we love our autonomy, don't we? We we tend to think in terms of self-creation. We celebrate the self-made man or woman. Our whole society is built on the concept of individuality and freedom. Uh, And I think we've so connected the two that we can struggle to believe that we could ever truly be ourselves if we are tied to someone or something else. Which is why I think more and more in our society we leave our marriages or our jobs or our churches or even our gender if we feel in any way stifled by it. See, Our culture has trained us to think that the best way to find ourselves is to look more and more into ourselves and do it on our own. And so the dependency that comes from being made in the image of God, it it kind of sounds to a lot of us a bit like a sick joke or the design of some kind of egomaniac. But what I want to turn and show you now is that this is actually incredibly, incredibly, incredibly good news not least because it totally transforms our view of ourselves and of others for the better. 
And so secondly, how does this affect our view of ourselves and of others? Well, when you just try and consider how vast the whole universe is, and that you are only one of billions and billions of people who have ever lived, it's easy to feel pretty small, isn't it? But no matter how small we feel, no matter how small we may actually be, the implication of what we've been seeing so far is that we are not insignificant. We are not lost in the grand cosmos. We do matter. But it's not because we're in any of those categories that I mentioned at the beginning. It's not because we're in any of those categories we might choose to define ourselves by. It's not because we're a certain gender or skin color. It's not because we have a particular set of qualifications or earn a certain amount of money. It doesn't come from our sexuality or our marital status. It's completely unrelated to any responsibility we carry at work or in the church. It's nothing to do with what we accomplish or how many people we influence. It's nothing to do with anything we've done or that we do. It's all because of something that God did way back at the beginning of time. Because when God created all of this beauty, all of this life, all of this splendor, he capped it off with one final masterpiece. One that he didn't leave merely to words alone. For his final masterpiece, he rolled up his sleeves, he stooped down and left his own fingerprints in the dust. He created human beings. His final masterpiece was us. Unlike the rest of creation, as glorious as it is, only human beings are made in the image of God. In other words, Your life is deeply significant because when God created you, he crowned you with glory and honor by making you like himself. The Bible says, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your record is, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life, it doesn't matter how low you've gone, Every human being made in the image of God reflects God. Therefore, there's a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance and value and worth and dignity and honor about every single one of us. In Psalm 139, King David, who himself was once considered too small, young, and insignificant to be of any great worth. He speaks of a God who sovereignly and lovingly invests himself in our lives from their earliest moments. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb, he says. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex your workmanship is marvelous. This is no accident of biology. Everything about our bodies, from those size 12 feet, to that balding head, to those closely set eyes, to those thighs that some of us love to hate, everything about us was wonderfully 
and personally shaped by God's own hand. Personally shaped to reflect something of his unique nature. Personally shaped to bring us deeper into relationship with him and communion with others. Personally shaped to bring us to glory in the end. But look, let's be real. Maybe one of the greatest challenges to embracing this, and I didn't see a whole lot of joy and excitement as I was kind of rattling through that. One of the greatest challenges to embracing this is the reality of wrestling with the aspects of life that are beyond our control. I mean, what do we do with the things that we don't like about ourselves? What do we do with the very real evil and pain that scar us in ways that we can never erase? What do we do with our brokenness? I think the problem comes when we isolate God's sovereignty, that He's in control of everything, He shapes everything, He knows everything, He's over everything. It's a glorious truth. The problem comes when we isolate that from everything else that God reveals about Himself. You see, if all we choose to focus in on is God's sovereignty, it can leave us with a really one-dimensional view that turns God into some kind of cosmic bully who views us merely as playthings that he uses for his own bizarre benefit. And so the fact that God has ensured that we'll never be able to truly know ourselves or find fulfillment apart from him can end up being a source of resentment for us rather than joy. And the reality is that our very nature ties us to him, is seen as bad news rather than something to be celebrated. But here's the thing, we're not the only ones tied. He is tied to us, but by placing his image in us, God assumes an extra measure of ownership and responsibility for our whole lives. If you like, we bear his brand. We bear his trademark. But even more than that, by placing his image on us, God has bound himself to us as a parent. First and foremost, we're his children. And like with any good parent, he is 100% committed to protecting and nurturing his children. Listen, God's sovereignty is matched every step of the way by his infinite love. While God has the power to do whatever he pleases, it pleases him to exercise his power with extravagant love on behalf of his children. Now, I think the beauty and the real genius of this is that our good and his glory are totally inseparable. Whilst our good is found by displaying more and more of his glory, his glory is found by bringing about our good. Which doesn't mean that he'll always shield us from pain, or that there won't be things that we want to change about ourselves. 
But it does mean that in them, he still has an overarching purpose, and through them, he himself will come alongside and care for us. You know, all around us, people are desperately trying to find categories to define themselves by that will give them a sense of freedom and significance and worth. But all the time, the true identity that's guaranteed to bring ultimate freedom and significance has already been given to us by virtue of our being made in the image and likeness of God. But as the writer Hannah Anderson observes, often we can struggle to remember this in the midst of daily life. She writes, we become so enamored with our own ability to shape our lives, to be whoever we want to be, that we forget that we are in this moment, who we are in this moment is as much a gift as the day we first entered the world. We forget that our lives, our identities, have been given to us by God. Now, I suggest all of this has massive implications, not just for our view of ourselves, but our view of others as well. I'll tell you, if, if you're assured of your value and significance because of your relationship with God, it's got a massive bearing on all your other relationships. As C.S. Lewis once put it, there are no ordinary people. No ordinary people. He went on to add, the weight of your neighbor's glory is a burden you should put on your back every day. Just let it sink in. We're to treat every person we meet with a sacredness, a reverence, a respect. We're to be genuinely concerned for their individuality and well-being. We should never write anybody off or tell anyone to get lost. We're to treat everyone with kindness, grace, gentleness. Now here's the challenge. Do you? God says, if I'm the source of your glory, if you are reflecting me, then everywhere you go in life, you will be able to serve people unconditionally. Now, to try to make this a little more real, to try to make this a little more practical, uh, if you've got a job, let, let's take your job, let's take your work as an example. If in day-to-day -day life you are facing your job, looking to your job rather than to God, if your job, if your work is the way you know you have value and significance and meaning, then probably you're going to overwork or you're going to lie or cheat or trample on others if it means keeping your job. Or you're going to be utterly devastated if you have any kind of downturn in your work. Because the work isn't about the work, it's about you. But God says, if you face me, then when you go out into your work, or you go out into your relationships, or you go out into your parenting, 
your marriage, your dating, or whatever, then you'll serve people instead of using them. You'll bring life wherever you go. But if you make anything else more important than God, whether it's your work, your friends, some cause that's really important to you, your achievements, that if you center on status, human approval, power, that that's how you're getting your value, do you know what's going wrong? You've broken, you've shattered the image of God in yourself. And as a result, you're going to end up trampling on the image of God in others. And I'll tell you what, I think that's why there's so much violence and injustice in the world right now. I think that's the explanation for terrorism and genocide and slavery and poverty. That's the reason why we fall out with each other and exploit each other and manipulate each other in our relationships and use people just because they have connections, all of that stuff. Why do we do that? The Bible says it's because the image of God is broken in you and me. That's the reason why, at least some of the time, we don't honor it in others. Because the image of God is broken in us, we don't honor it as much as we should in the people around us. And so what's the solution? What can be done about this? Well, thirdly and finally, and incredibly swiftly, let's turn our attention to the repair of the image of God. How's it going to be repaired? Well, Colossians 1 verse 16 says, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And in John 14 verse 9, Jesus himself says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what that means? Jesus now is the only perfect image of God. You've got to look to Jesus if you want to see the real beauty and glory of God. In another passage, in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 15, Paul speaks about the kind of person who doesn't know Jesus died to pay for their sins. He says, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. He's saying that when these people read the Bible, read the Scriptures, there's a veil over their hearts. But he continues, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. What's Paul talking about? Well, what's going to take your heart and attract it back? So instead of focusing so much on how you look, or how you're doing, or how smart you are, or what other people think about you, whether someone is in love with you. See, we're meant to reflect God and get our glory from Him, but we're looking to all of these other things all of the time. What's going to attract my heart back to looking to Him? Well, it's not enough to be challenged a bit by a talk like this and go away and say, well, okay, uh, 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 from now on, I've got to make God the center of my life. That's probably not going to do it. Something has got to attract you back. And Paul says, if you see Jesus and what he's done for you, when you see that even though he was the only perfect image of God in the world, he was trampled on, 
utterly trampled on. Why? He did it voluntarily to pay the penalty for our sins, to make a way for us to come back to Him. When I see that, more than anything else, I see some of the beauty and the glory, the radiance of God. I see a holiness that is so incredibly, ferociously holy, He had to come and die for me. I mean, that's how sinful I am. But I also see a love, so infinitely loving, He was glad to do it for me. And when I consider that, when it impacts not just my head but sinks down into my heart, when I gaze on the glory of God in Jesus Christ, you know what? That begins to turn the mirror of my heart back towards Him and away from all that other stuff. As I begin to center on Him more and more, that begins to heal the image of God in me. And the more it heals the image of God in me, the less I'm trampling on the image of God in other people. At the end of the day, the absolute key to repairing the broken image of God in you is to look to Jesus. Let it hit you afresh what He has done for you and fall in love with Him all over again. So there you have it. You're made in the image of God. And the implications of that, well, they are absolutely massive. This message, if you get it, has the potential to totally, totally transform not only your life, but the way you view the lives of others too. Philip, my time is long since gone. I've done everything in my power to try to communicate this to you to try and help you see the glorious truth of what it means to be made in the image of God. Sorry if I haven't done well enough. I've done all I could. But really now it's over to you. It's over for you to, to try and work out what this looks like in your life and then go and act on it. Let's pray.